Good morning and welcome. We're running a little bit behind today. I apologize for that. But if you have your Bibles and you'll open them to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to go ahead and read through verses 17, beginning at verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you can simply listen along as I read these verses aloud. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. But they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. I'm assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We said last week when we began a study of this section that it is perhaps the human tendency to always choose, maybe not always, but frequently choose the path of least resistance. Uh, take the easier path. And we said that's where we get this idea of when in Rome, you, you do as the Romans do. You sort of go along to get along. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians, of course, is that as the followers of Jesus Christ, that is the one thing we must not do. We must not do as the Romans do. We must not follow along in the ways of the world. And Paul mentions two things about the world that he says are problematic. One is the futility of their minds. He says their minds have become darkened. They have become futile in their thinking. And we pointed out last week that there is a profound difference between the notions of knowledge and wisdom. We live in the information age. You can acquire a great deal of information, a great deal of knowledge about almost anything. Uh, if you want to know how to fix your car, all you have to do is Google it. We have all of these search engines. But while we are a nation that is filled with information, while we are a culture, a world that is filled with information, information is not the same thing as knowledge. Having the ability, having the information does not necessarily tell us what we should do with it. Just because you know how to split the atom doesn't necessarily tell you whether you should split the atom. Just because we have knowledge to clone a sheep or to do designer babies does not necessarily tell us that we should necessarily do those things. For that, we need something beyond information. And Paul says the problem with the current culture is that you have people who are always learning but never coming to a true knowledge, 
to a true knowledge. That's one problem, he says, with the culture, and we are not to be like that. We are to walk out of step with the world. And he said the reason that their minds have become darkened is because their hearts have become hardened. Now, the word that he uses there is the word poros or porosis. It literally means marbled or calloused. Uh, if you work with your hands, what starts off as a, a blister and can be very painful if you continue to do it becomes what? Calloused and unfeeling. And Paul says that is precisely what has happened with the world. The world has turned away from God for so long that our hearts have become calloused, unfeeling when it comes to the things of God. And Paul says we are not to be like that. We are to be different. If we are going to fulfill our vocation as Christians in the world, we cannot do as the Romans do. We cannot walk in step with the world. We have to walk out of step with the world. And we talked about what that looks like. To walk out of step with the world, we must first of all see the world as God sees it. It is not a perfect world. It was created to be a perfect world, but it has become corrupted by human sin. Paul says all of creation moans as in travail, longing for redemption. So we have to realize that people are not by nature good. That is not to say that we don't have value. We of course have value because we've been made in the image of God. We are of infinite value in the sense that God sent his son to die for us. But the scripture does not teach us that we are by nature good people. In fact, in the gospels we're told that Jesus would entrust himself to no man. Now that's Jesus. Jesus would entrust himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. The Lord himself said, it's not what goes into a man that corrupts, it's what? It's what comes out of a man that is corrupting. And so we need to recognize if we're going to walk out of step with the world, if we are going to be salt and light in the world, if we are going to fulfill our Christian vocation and be a light in the darkness, then we need to recognize the world as God sees it, as a broken, fallen world in desperate need of redemption. The second thing is we need to recognize people's spiritual blindness, their inability in and of themselves to perceive spiritual things and to receive the gospel. Paul says they have become hardened. You know that parable that Jesus tells about the sower, the four soils. There were different types of soil, and one of those soils was the hard path. It was so packed down from the animals and the people trotting over it for so long that when the seed fell on it, it simply glanced off. And Jesus said, some people's hearts are like that. They have turned so many times away that they become impervious to the message of the gospel. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that the world is not friendly toward the Christian gospel and that people have chosen to live in the darkness for so long that it's become impossible for them to see the light. Do you ever see a mole? one of those ugly little critters, um, those rodents that live beneath the soil and cause havoc in your yard, unless you have a cat. Oh, I don't even have anything up there on the screen, do I? <laughs> well, you've never seen one. Of course not. Well, now you have. There he is. It's an ugly little critter, isn't it? And one of the things you'll notice about it is it doesn't appear to have any eyes. Actually, they do have eyes. But they've devolved. They've lived in a dark environment in a subterranean world for so long that they have lost the ability to see. Or they've lost the ability to see well. 
And, and that is the way God sees our world as a broken world, as a corrupted world, as a world filled with people who are spiritually blind, who have chosen the darkness over the light and have engaged in that world for so long that they've lost their spiritual ability to see the truth even when it is proclaimed to them. And that means that the only hope for the world is for somebody to live differently than that. That's a picture of the culture around us. How is this world to be redeemed? How is this world to be saved if the people who claim to be the followers of Christ, whose hearts are not supposed to be hardened, who've exchanged a heart of stone for a heart of flesh, whose minds supposedly have been enlightened by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, if we walk in step with the world, how is the world to ever be saved? That's Paul's great message, you see. That's what it means for the church to be the body of Christ on earth. And so we are called, Paul says, to be different. Again, he says, now this I say to you, I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk like that, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, in the darkening of their understanding, alienated from God due to the hardness of their hearts. We are to walk out of step. What does that look like? Well, Paul uses an image here, and we looked at it last week. He uses this image of putting off and putting on. He says, you have put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you have what? Put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I said that there is a sense in which we are what we wear. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that clothes can affect the way you act what you wear. And furthermore, we recognize that certain types of attire reveal a person's vocation, and certain types of attire also reveal a particular occasion. What is, what is happening? We recognize that clergy, medical professionals, police officers, military personnel, prisoners, etc., they all wear a particular type of clothing that is reflective of their status. We said there are certain occasions like weddings and funerals in which you recognize it's appropriate to wear a particular type of clothing, and that clothing is reflective of the occasion. Well, Paul says the same should be true for us as Christians, and he uses this imagery of putting off and putting on. He said, you put off the old way, you've gotten rid of your old clothes, as it were, and you put on a new set of clothes, and those new set of clothes should, what, be reflective of the way you live. People should be able to tell by your new set of clothes who you are and what you do. And that new set of clothes is what? The righteousness of Christ. That's the image that Paul uses here, the righteousness of Christ. We have a powerful picture of this. Uh, if you turn to John's gospel for just a moment, to John chapter 11, to a very familiar story, we get, as I said, a very powerful illustration of this. This, of course, is the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You know, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He became ill. His sisters called for Jesus, Mary and Martha, but the Lord lingered where he was for some days until Lazarus died. And then Jesus went to Bethany with the express purpose, incidentally, of raising him from the dead. Now, you all know the story. Um, most people focus on the fact that Jesus came to the tomb and wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But what I want to focus on is something else. It's really the last verse of the section. Beginning at John 11, verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the mouth of the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Here's the part I want you to notice. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Now that was not atypical of first century Jewish burial rites. That's how a person was buried. That's how Jesus, incidentally, was buried when his body was taken down from the cross and laid in that borrowed tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They would have been wrapped in these tight linen strips, swaddling cloths, incidentally, the same sort of cloths that Jesus was wrapped in when he was born. He was wrapped in those same kinds of cloths when he died. But what I want you to notice is that when the man came out, dressed like that, like that mummy, bound tight, what did Jesus say? Jesus' last words were these, unbind him and let him go. That is to say, take off those grave clothes and give him a new set of clothes. Those clothes represent death. Give him a new set of clothes that represent what? Life. And Paul says, if you were a Christian, that is what has happened to you. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, but God raised you to the new life of grace. Therefore, put off those old grave clothes, that old way of living, and put on the kind of behavior that is reflective of your new status. He expands on this image. He says, you have, he speaks in the past tense because obviously as Christians, that's who he's talking to, he says, you have done what? He said, you have put off falsehood. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Paul is saying, you have put off the old way of living and you put on Christ. He uses that image elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 13. He speaks of putting on Christ like a garment. That's, that's the language that he uses. You have put on Christ like a garment. You are clothed in Christ, in his righteousness. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus was going to spend a weekend with you, are there certain places you would take Jesus and certain places you wouldn't take Jesus? If Jesus were going to spend a month with you, are there certain places that you would customarily go that you probably would not want to take Jesus with you? That he might feel uncomfortable in that particular environment. Well, let me tell you something. If you are a Christian, Jesus goes with you wherever you go. You are clothed in his righteousness. That is what Paul is talking about here. He said, you put on Christ as a garment, and the fact that you are clothed in his righteousness, that ought to be reflective of what you do, where you go, and how you behave. Now, it's interesting, the, the language that Paul uses here. He says, therefore, having put off falsehood. The Greek word that is translated here as falsehood is pseudos. You're familiar with it because it's the word from which we get pseudo. And what does pseudo mean? 
fake. Well, I can tell you exactly what it means because I got the dictionary <laughs> definition in front of me. Here's what the word pseudo means. Not genuine, spurious, a sham, bogus, phony, imitation, artificial, mock, ersatz, quasi, fake, feigned, pretended, false, faux, spurious, counterfeit, fraudulent, deceptive, misleading, assumed, contrived, affected, insincere, put on, fakey. Paul says that's what you were. The language we would use for that is a hypocrite. Now we've already talked about that. The Greek for hypocrite means to wear a mask. It comes from the Greek theater. It means that you and I have been walking around trying to put on a mask to the world. But Paul says you have taken off that which is insincere, fake, bogus, fraudulent, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, and you have put on what? The truth. Now he doesn't say you have put on truth or even truthfulness. He says you have put on the truth. So it's truth with a capital T. The definite article is there. It is the truth. Now, we live in a culture in which people have their own individual truths. This is what Oprah Winfrey says. You just need to tell your truth, as though we all have our own individual version of it. But Paul says that is not the case. You have put off a false way of living, that which is not reflective of the fact that you've been made in the image of God, and you have put on the truth. Now, when you hear that language, the truth, what does it immediately bring to your mind? Well, it brings John 14 to mind, doesn't it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's what theologians like to call the doctrine of radical particularity. There's a big one for you today. The doctrine of radical... Go out and use that sometime in, in your foyer group. It'll very much impress people. The doctrine of radical particularity. It's the idea that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, the life. Now, why is he the only way to the Father, as offensive as that may be to our politically correct culture? Because if he is the truth, then every other way is what? False. And that's the point that Paul is saying here. That's right. Every other way is pseudo. Christ is the truth, and you have put on the truth that is in Christ. Now, that has a trickle-down effect. If you have put off those old garments, when Lazarus came out of the tomb, what do you think he did with those grave clothes? I think he probably burned them. Let's get rid of that. It is over and done with. And he put on something new, reflective of his life. That vitality, that energy that had come back into his body as a result of this great miracle. And Paul is saying the same should be true for us. Put away everything associated with that old life and put on that which is reflective of your new life in Christ. Because you have put off falsehood and put on the truth, therefore, he goes on to say, put away lying. All forms of lying and instead begin to act and speak honestly. Samuel Johnson, famous 18th century intellectual, once said, it is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. If we are anything in our culture, we are careless about the truth. It's not as though we sometimes go out and intentionally try to deceive people. We're just careless about the truth. The fisherman who tells the exaggerated story 
it was really this size, but what he caught was actually this size. Now, you might say, well, that's not really lying, but it's carelessness about the truth, you see. And when you are careless about the truth, it simply becomes easier and easier as time goes by to tell a bald-faced lie. So Paul says that's not the way it should be with us. We have put on the truth. We must speak truthfully. We have to be careful about how we talk, about the things that we say. We cannot be careless with the truth. He goes on to say, to walk out of step with the world, to put on Christ means to put off anger and to put on righteous indignation. That's what he says. He says, be angry, verse 28. It's interesting. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We would expect Jesus to say, don't be angry and do not sin. But he says, be angry, but don't sin. Which is to say that there are times, there are those moments when it is appropriate to be angry. Now, when are those moments? That's the problem. What does it mean to be righteously indignant? Because oftentimes we like to clothe our anger, our wrath, our temper tantrum in righteous indignation, but it isn't. So how do we tell the difference between anger and righteous indignation? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Jesus, in spite of the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes were always trying to discredit him in the eyes of the people, nevertheless loved him. And as he was there hanging on the cross and people were jeering and shouting and abusing him, he cried out what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus loved even those who hated him. But Jesus became angry. And one of the great examples of this is when he went up to Jerusalem for the very last time, and he came into the city, and the first thing that he did when he arrived there is he went up to the temple and he drove the money changers out. And he overturned their tables, and he drove them out on one occasion with a whip. Now, why did he do that? I'll tell you why he was doing it, because those money changers were exploiting the people. When you went up to Jerusalem, particularly during the Passover, one of the things that you had to do was pay the temple tax. And you went up there, people were traveling from all parts of the world. They were coming up to Jerusalem at this very special time of the year. And when you went up there, you had to pay the temple tax, but it had to be paid in temple currency. And the money changers would do what? Oh, they would exchange your currency, but there was always an exchange rate. And it wasn't for you. Same thing was true. You had to bring an animal up. And they had to be inspected by the priest. And the animal had to be pure and spotless without blemish. People would bring their animals up there and they would be inspected, but it was never the case that your animal was ever pure, spotless, or without blemish. But, just so happens, we've got a whole group of animals over here. And for the right price, we can make sure that you have one of those. They were buying and selling salvation, and that made Christ angry, especially as the one Lamb of God who was pure, spotless, and without blemish. And so, in righteous indignation, he did what? He drove them out. He also would a few days later mount the arms of the cross and die for those people. But he was angry at their behavior and what they were doing, exploiting the people. One way to tell the difference between anger and righteous indignation 
Anger oftentimes tainted with sin, righteous indignation that is not necessarily. So one way to tell is, are you defending your own honor or are you defending the honor of someone else? See, in Jesus' case, it wasn't his own honor that he was concerned about. It was the concern for other people that made him righteously indignant. Oftentimes when we're attacked, we get upset, we get angry because somebody has done us wrong. Well, people are going to do us wrong. Jesus said, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. Righteous indignation is when you are angry because you see someone else, particularly an innocent person, being exploited. It's not your honor you're defending. It's not your well-being you're defending. You're defending the well-being of others. Do you understand the distinction between those two things? So Jesus said there are times when we should be angry, even as Christians, as the followers of Christ, particularly when we see evil in the world, particularly when we see injustice in the world. We just finished a few months ago celebrating Christmas. And shortly after Christmas, we have the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And that's when King Herod decided in an effort to get at the Christ child to order the slaughter of all those babies in Bethlehem. You remember that? Tragic, tragic event. Well, I'm going to say something today that may offend some of you. But my job is to be faithful to Jesus Christ. My job is not to pander to any congregation or to any group of people, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. What happened in the state of New York and that legislature by these late-term abortions is an absolute evil. There is no other way to put it. It is an absolute evil. And any nation that sings God bless America and expects that God will bless a nation when it sacrifices its most innocent citizens cannot expect the blessing of God. It simply cannot. And as Christians, we should be angry about that. We should be furious about that. Because that is an evil, my friends. An evil perpetrated upon the most innocent elements in our society. That's righteous indignation. That's not anger. That is a desire to see justice done. Those whom God knit together in their mother's womb at the point of birth, their lives to be taken. And the reason I feel I need to step out and say something about this is because how can pastors who are shepherds of a flock remain silent while lambs are slaughtered? And so we should be angry about this sort of thing. That is righteous indignation. And we should not stand by idly while it happens. If you have any concern whatsoever for your nation or for the world, this is the sort of thing that we as Christians need to stand up and stand against. And pray for those who would perpetrate such crimes. So that is what Paul is talking about when he talks about righteous indignation. Now Paul is well aware of the fact that there will be times when we will be angry, and even rightly so, but there will be times when a person repents. And if that's the case, what does Paul say? Be quick to mend fences. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let me tell you, this is one for you husbands and wives. You may fight all day, but before you go to bed, you better make up. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
Because that kind of anger, that kind of rancor will inevitably form a cancer in your relationship that by and large will eat away at your very relationship. So don't let that happen. Paul says, yes, there is a time, or Jesus said, there is a time when it is right for us to be indignant, to be angry, but he says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's what Paul is saying here. He goes on to say, if you're going to walk out of step with the world, put on Christ, he says, you are to put off stealing and put on hard work. Verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. What is Paul talking about there? Well, of course, he's talking about theft. But I think by virtue of the fact that Paul combines let the thief no longer steal with let him do honest labor, what that really means is we're not just talking about pilfering here. We're not just talking about stealing the grapes at the Harris Teeter as we walk on by and <laughs> popping one in our mouth. You know, that's, that's pilfering. And it is stealing, by the way, so if I see you doing it, I'm going to call you out on it. <laughs> and it's not just embezzling funds like the Enron scandal from a few years ago. Now, of course, it includes all of that. But Paul is talking about a way of life here. He's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about the mind of Christ, the way we think, the way we act. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No secrets are hid. God's not simply concerned with what we do. He wants to know why we're doing it. So when Paul says... The thief must no longer steal, but he must work honestly. What Paul is saying is that you can steal in a legal sort of way. For example, if you're an employee and you're not giving your employer everything that he deserves, you're not giving him a hard day's work, but you are cutting corners and you're cutting out, well, the boss left today so we can get out of here early. Or we can come in late because we know that the boss doesn't come in until later. He's got a breakfast meeting. We can sort of cut corners. Paul says that is a form of theft. And you might say to yourself, well, my boss isn't a particularly good boss, and he's not really worthy of my best. That is beside the point, because who are you doing this for? You see, you put on Christ. What would Christ do in that circumstance? So we are to live differently, you see, because we put on Christ. And that new clothing should be reflective of a new way of behaving. So it goes much deeper than we would think. Paul says, put off all corrupting talk and put on, or put off corrupting talk and put on wholesome speech. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, the word that is translated here as unwholesome is an interesting word, it is the word sapros. It's correctly translated here as corrupting. You may recall that Jesus on one occasion said, store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal for where treasure is there will your heart be also. Same language here, corrupt corruptible. Something that is corruptible, moths and rust, what do they do? They break down. Isn't that what the moth does? If he gets into your closet, he's going to break down your clothing. What does rust do to ironwork? 
If you don't believe me, go look at some of it right out here. And you'll see that what rust does is it breaks it down. That's what unwholesome talk does. We're not just talking about dirty jokes here. We're talking about any kind of language that rather than building up people, tears them down. And there's a lot of that. Gossip in particular is one of the worst forms of it. It serves no purpose whatsoever. Now, you know how we do it. We want to clothe it this way. I'm only telling you this so that you can pray for her. Let me tell you, the minute you hear those words come out of the mouth, the thing that follows is corrupting talk. It's designed not to build up, not to edify, but to break down. And Paul says it must cease. He doesn't mean taper off. He said, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is designed to what? To build up to build up the body of Christ. He says, put off bitterness, rage, and slander. And finally, do what? Put on love. Now, you're going to hear a sermon about love today. Brian is going to preach on the subject of love today. But a great place to see what love is, and this is the passage for today, is to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, if you have your Bibles there, just go ahead and flip back a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everybody's familiar with this. One of the most famous sections of Paul's writings. Often read at weddings. Somebody came up to me and said, well, I think it's overdone at weddings. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't overdone until the people start living like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast that is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then you get to the end, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but what? The greatest of these is love. Now, I'm sure you know, you've been taught that Greek is a very rich language, particularly biblical Greek. And um, you've heard the expression, something gets lost in the translation. Well, that's probably true. And we only have one word in English that is translated as love. But in Greek, there are actually multiple terms that are used for love. Um, one of those words is the word phila, philia, from which we get the term Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. And that's, of course, what philia means. And uh, philia is used in the New Testament from time to time. I'll give you a great example of it in just a moment. Another Greek word that is used for love is the word storge. Uh, it means a homely affection, uh, the kind of affection that a man might have for his retriever. 
It's a real affection. But it is of a different caliber than philia. There's a third type of love, eros, from which we get our term erotic. It means romantic love, physical attraction. It's what most of us see on television and in movies these days. When he says, I love you, what he really means is, I lust after you. And that's not to say that there's not a proper place for eros, particularly in the marriage relationship. But it is of a different sort than philia and storge. And let me tell you something. As I said to you, Valentine's Day is just right around the corner. And you better not confuse those three terms. I'm just going to let you know right now. But there is a fourth term that is translated simply as love in English. See, all of these terms can be translated in English as just our word love. But in Greek, they mean something very different. So when Paul here in 1 Corinthians talks about a love, a love that is not easily angered, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, that always persists, he's not talking about homely affection. He's not talking about brotherly love. He is certainly not talking about romantic love. The Greek word that he uses there is agape. It means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. It is the same love that Jesus showed us on the cross. John 3.16 says, For God so what? Loved the world. And that's the word that is used there, agape. It is a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. The kind of love that thinks of another before it thinks of self. And Paul says, when all is said and done, having put on Christ, having put off this old way of living, had put on this new way of living, if you want to do all of these things that I've been talking about, no longer stealing, no longer letting unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, the best thing to do is to put on love. And not the world's version of love, but Christ's version of love, expressed to us fully by his sacrificial atoning death upon the cross. Put on that love. In so doing, you put on Christ, for God is love. Paul sums it up beautifully. Chapter 5, verse 1. I know that chapter 4 ends and chapter 5 begins, but remember that when Paul wrote this epistle, there were no chapter divisions. Those were put in in the Middle Ages to make reading the Bible easier for us. But there were no chapter divisions. And so I'm sort of of the mind that what Paul really meant was he said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then he sort of sums it up in this way. Therefore, be imitators of God. That is, if you put on Christ, you are what you wear. Begin to act like it. Begin to act like Christ. You put him on as a garment. Begin to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, if you're upset about the world, if you're concerned about the world, this is the only cure for the world's ills. It's for the people of God who put on Christ to begin acting like Christ. It's for the people of God to begin to love unconditionally. Now you say, well, where does that come from? If there's one thing that's very clear out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love that Paul talks about is not easy. I've said this many times before. 
Every time I go to a wedding, I have the opportunity to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. I always like to say, this is not easy. You know, we, we talk about love as though it's something that happens to us by chance or by accident. Oh, we fell in love. What seems to be the problem with your marriage? Oh, we're falling out of love. Love is not something that you fall into like a chair or down the flight of stairs. Love is hard work. I mean, be honest with yourself. Love is not easily angered. Every man in the room. Every time I preach on this, you see women elbowing their husbands. I see love is not easily angered. And then I always say, and here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Because that is the tendency you see. That is hard work. Where do you gain the ability, the wherewithal, to love like that? Only by living in that relationship with Jesus Christ. The more time you spend with him, the more like him you will become. The more you will be clothed in his righteousness, the more people will see in you the person of Christ. And the more they see the person of Christ, the more they will seek to have what you have. And one by one, person by person, the world begins to change. It's our only hope, folks. So let me ask you a question. Have you put on Christ? Have you put off that old way? How many of you claim to be Christians and you've, you, you've got Christ living in your life? You, you, I'm not going to test you. you. Just be honest. If you have, you haven't. Then ask the question, is your behavior reflective of the garment that covers you? It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Father, we realize that the world is a darkened place. It is a cold place. It is a needy place. And the hope of the world is that the church may begin to be Christ-like. Grant us the grace to put off the old ways, to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, and to begin to live a life that is reflective of our new clothing. Let us put away the old grave clothes of sin and death and put upon us the wedding garment that others may see in us the only hope that they and the world have in Jesus Christ. Amen.